Hi, this is Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian at the Department of Heritage and Arts. You're listening to Speak Your Peace. That's P-I-E-C-E as well as P-E-A-C-E. Today's speaker is Dr. W. Paul Reeve from the University of Utah. This podcast, Speak Your Peace, is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries about Utah history. It's also a place where if you do nothing else, here's where you can get your history fix. The purpose also is to make you aware of history that not only is useful, but also something important or entertaining or something that's worthwhile. So we're grateful that you're listening today. My speaker who's joining us, Dr. Paul Reeve, was raised in Southern Utah, I believe it in Hurricane, Utah, Washington County. Paul has taught at the University of Utah since 2008, American, Western, Mormon, and Utah history. He is the first ever Simmons Professor of Mormon Studies, and he's written the following books. Making Space on the Western Frontier, Mormon Miners and Southern Paiutes in 2007 by the University of Illinois. Mormon, Mormonism, a historical encyclopedia with an amazing deep researcher, Artist Parcel, published in 2010. And there are a number of other books, but the one I most particularly want to reference, or actually two, is his 2018 very thoughtful postscript to Newell Bringhurst's second edition, Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, The Changing Place of Black People Within Mormonism, in 2018. And that's the second edition. And I thought after all the research you've done in ethnic studies and African-American, Paul, I thought that was very interesting. Do you remember the postscript that you wrote? Uh, at least vaguely. Uh, <laughs> you're <laughs> reminding I, me of it right now. What I thought was just so wonderful is just this idea that um, uh, there's something more to be said about ethnic studies and understanding the black experience in Mormonism. Uh, something that's been rather popular of late. And I think one of the reasons it's so popular is your 2015 book uh, published by Oxford University Press, Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. Now, BYU Studies reviewed this, and they called it a tour de force, required reading for anyone interested in Mormon in the Mormon past. And then the, re- the reviewer also went on to say, if you're interested in the religious impact or the impact of religion on America, on the general national uh, national discourse. This is a book to read. Uh, this was an award winner, Paul, and I just want to say, as the former director of state history, I was very proud that uh, you received the Francis Armstrong Madsen Best History Book Award. I think in 2016. Yeah, that's right. But you also Thank received you. the same award from the Mormon History Association and the John. Whitmer Association. Now, Utah history and race is what we'll be talking about today with Paul, but particularly we want to speak about his public history project, Century of Black Mormons, which Paul serves as the general editor of this digital database. General Paul, tell us about this database and why is it important to Utah history? Well, uh, I think when I was looking for a new project after religion of a different color, um, I'm, I'm a social historian at heart. Um, that means trying to understand history from the bottom up instead of the top down. 
what's the perspective of the average person. Um, and I've always just uh, been interested uh, what what history looks like from the vantage point of those who more often than not get erased from our historical narratives. And so um, I wanted to do a public history project that engaged the public in a different way. So you obviously can write um, a monograph, but uh, I wanted to do a, a digital public history project where the public could have access to sources and um, just name, number, and identify all known people of black African descent baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints between 1830 and 1930. So let me ask you about this idea of primary sources. This is one of the big, it's a big deal in public history. It's the, with the World Wide Web having access to sources. Just what are, pub, what are primary sources and how do they fit into this project? Primary sources are the sources that are created uh, at the time period. Uh, and for people who leave few written records behind, they're really all that historians have to go on, um, trying to recover the lives of people uh, who are usually on the margins of, of society. And so primary sources um, can be vital records. Uh, they can be um, a a birth certificate, a death certificate. Uh, they can be something written by the person uh, themselves, uh, something in their own handwriting versus a secondary source, which is written later by a uh, an historian, for example. So that's how we distinguish between a primary and a secondary source. So a primary source is created at the time, uh, something um, that... Uh, isn't filtered through a, a, an historian's lens, but is actually just a document. And it doesn't mean that there are, can't be problems with primary sources, because obviously there can. Uh, they, they can also be incorrect, but nonetheless, um, they are uh, what historians have to go on when they try to reconstruct someone's story. Well, and I know with as I see primary sources, so often you have to understand the motive and the purpose for why things are uh, produced and so on, but there that that wonderful mining of material that came from the time you're trying to sort out and understand. So, how are they going to fit into this website? And by the way, tell us the web the web name. So, uh, centuryblackmormons.org. Uh, if you just type that into a Google search, you should uh, come up with with the. Uh, web address. Um, it's housed and hosted by the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. So, um, centuryblackmormons.org. Okay, tell us more. What? Tell us about who's included, um, who's involved, who helps you put this together. Uh, so, uh, so are, are are you interested in um, sort of the structure, or who's included actually in the database? The former. Okay. But we'll get to the, the okay. latter. Okay. Uh, so uh, a variety of people uh, have been very generous. Uh, a variety of people, a variety of institutions have been very generous in, in collaborating with us on this, this project. So the Marriott Library at the University of Utah uh, agreed to host 
the database. Um, they provide the secure storage. Um, they provide the backup. They provide all the data storage that I need, as well as all the technical support. Uh, they have a fantastic faculty at the Marriott Library who are trained in digital projects. I was fortunate enough to collaborate with uh, Anna Nietrauer, who's a digital librarian at the Marriott Library. She's a specialist in Omeka S. So the project is built in Omeka S, which is uh, the platform that we use to uh, hold the data together, in other words. Uh, she trained me on that, but also um, uh, just the support of the Marriott Library. Uh, I got to go into the meetings with the ideas, and then they were the ones who turned it into what it looked like um, for a public interface. And you're also working with public history students. Tell us about who are the ones gathering and working to pull this together. I mean, this isn't, a, per se, a book where one just puts it all online. I mean, this is organic and evolving and engages various authors. That's right. So... Uh, we have uh, graduate students who uh, work on the projects. Um, I give, when I teach my Mormonism class, uh, if graduate students take the Mormonism class, uh, one of their final projects can be researching and writing a, a biography for a century of black Mormons. Um, it really teaches the, the craft of history in a really important way, I think, just the process of collecting uh, the information. Uh, students understand uh, how, how you turn those primary sources into a biography, and, and especially sometimes very sparse uh, primary sources into at least a biographical sketch of a person's life. Uh, so I think pedagogically there's value in, in what's going on, but uh, obviously um, using graduate students, also there are people from the community who are uh, a part of the project. Um, Artist Partial, Tony Ryder, who is a descendant herself of uh, enslaved African-Americans brought to Utah Territory, uh, as well as slave master, um, and she is uh, a living descendant uh, and has been very heavily involved in the project. Uh, the Church History Library of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, has been very open with us with their sources. So we are obviously relying upon uh, the sources that are available in the Church History Library and uh, the Family History Library. And both institutions have uh, been fantastic in terms of cooperating with us and allowing us access to the sources we need. So let me ask you this, Paul. When I think of the African-American experience with Mormonism, but also Utah, I mean, at the present moment, there's about 1.5% uh, of our population is African-American. Um, I know uh, in the early years of the LDS Church, there was a kind of a universality where no matter what race you belonged to, uh, you were um, uh, you were part of this big story. Uh, tell our audience a little bit about just the African American experience in Utah. What are the key points that kind of pull this? You know, if you had a little bit of a backdrop mm -hmm. to what you're doing, could you share that? Sure. Yeah. Well. Uh you know, hopefully uh, people are aware, but if they're not, our database will, will hopefully help them make a, uh, be, be become more aware. Uh, 
1847 pioneers into the Salt Lake Valley, into northern Mexico in July 1847, uh, included uh, African Americans. Uh, so uh, the advance party included three enslaved men, uh, Greenflake, Harclay, and Oscar Crosby. Greenflake and Oscar Crosby uh, were both Latter-day Saints. Harclay may have been, but we haven't been able to confirm that. Uh, we're hoping to find maybe additional sources to verify uh, if he was also baptized into the faith. But uh, for sure, both Greenflake and, and Oscar Crosby were. They were rebaptized after they arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, which was uh, typical in the 19th century for those arriving in the Salt Lake Valley after their journey, uh, it was a, uh, a way of demonstrating their uh, recommitments to the cause, uh, an outward symbol of uh, their their commitment, uh, as well as sort of a notion of their rebirth in this new location. And so, we 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 have uh, Greenflake and Oscar Crosby both rebaptized in, into the faith, and then later that same year, eighteen forty seven. Uh, Jean Manning James, uh, her husband Isaac James, their son, uh, also a part of that 1847 uh, migration into the Salt Lake Valley. So African-Americans are a part of the Latter-day Saint pioneer story. They have been erased from collective memory. And uh, uh, our project is a public history project designed to recover what was lost uh, and to make sure that they are never forgotten again, but also um, simply to demonstrate that it was more than maybe just one or two who have received the bulk of historical attention. We're trying to name and number all of them. Um, and so uh, that's also a part of the project. Um, so obviously 1847 is an important marker then uh, for African-American history in Utah. Um, there are other markers across the course of uh, the 19th century and if you talk about uh, uh, racial policies within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then they are markers of loss. Um, so that open space for black participation starts to diminish Close. yeah, uh, diminish across a course of, of the 19th century in fits and starts. But, but Brigham Young in 1852 uh, first articulates uh, publicly a race-based priesthood restriction within Mormonism. Uh, that's to the Utah Territorial Legislature as they're debating uh, the servant code that will define the legal relationship between those who are enslaved. This is somewhat of a way the territory was able to deal with slavery was to create some sort of servitude or servant um, indenture process. Is that right? Well, that's right. So they, that's what they're they're trying to figure out in the 1852 legislative session. Uh, what will the legal relationship be? Uh, so you have uh, converts from the South uh, who have brought their black slaves with them to Utah Territory. Uh, some of those enslaved people are also converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So uh, both the white enslaver as well as the black enslaved can be and and were uh, members of the same faith. They have arrived in Utah Territory. The legislative session is attempting to define what the legal relationship between uh, those people are. They pass an act in relation to service uh in the 1852 legislative session, which defines that legal relationship. Uh, 
basically it's a conservative form of gradual emancipation. It frees no one that was then enslaved, but um, the next generation uh, would not have been held in, in slavery. So uh, it's patterned after gradual emancipation laws passed in places like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, Connecticut, New York, uh, but nonetheless, it ensures that those who are brought to Utah territory will die in slavery. And uh, Orson Pratt, who's a legislator during that session, uh, speaks out very strongly against the bill, calls it a great evil, mm -hmm. uh, and wants it rejected in its entirety. He doesn't win that debate. Um, Brigham Young uh, does. And There's some political, sadly, some fairly broad political accommodating going yeah. on in order to... Uh, I mean, their uh, efforts at trying to uh, receive statehood. Yes, uh, that's that's right. I think they're really uh, trying to accommodate uh, white enslavers uh, more than they're trying to accommodate uh, the black enslaved. So obviously there's a racial hierarchy and racism uh, drenches um, some of those speeches that come out of that legislative session. Uh, Pratt is doing every, everything he can to push back against uh, those sentiments. He's actually even arguing uh, in favor of black voting rights in 1852 in, in Utah Territory. And Brigham Young stridently uh, pushes back against that. And the result is an act in relation to service, which legalizes uh, the enslavement of those who have been brought to Utah Territory. Sort of maintains in the Utah Territory some sense of uh, human hierarchy amongst races and kind of codifies it for a good while. That's uh, right. It's, it, it's, it's very much a, an assertion of white supremacy that comes out of that legislative session. Which, you know, this is one of the things we got to address in history. And uh, Paul, you're one of the ones who understands best the under Mormonism, Utah and, and race. Let's move ahead into the 20th century. Just how does this story then unfold um, in a more recent times? Well, uh, uh, amongst uh, amongst the Latter Day Saints, um, you have a couple of other markers. 1879, uh, where uh, they also add a, a, a temple restriction. You have some of those uh, Black Latter Day Saints uh, who uh, agitate for uh, the open vision that had animated their introduction into the faith. Uh, um, so around the turn of the uh, 20th century, 1908, in fact, the then leader of, of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Joseph F. Smith, uh, I think puts the last brick in place uh, in terms of the racial restrictions. Uh, Jane Manning James, that 1847 pioneer uh, who uh, was really honored uh, amongst 1847 pioneers, uh, her and her brother uh, were given prominent spots in the tabernacle um, for conferences and always remembered in the uh, Pioneer Day celebrations, places of honor, uh, commemorated, interviewed in local newspapers in a variety of those ways. She passes away in 1908 and uh, Joseph S. Smith speaks at her funeral. Uh, but then um, that same year, he also simply articulates uh, the notion that uh, the Latter-day Saints would no longer actively seek out people of black African descent for conversion. If they wanted uh, to convert, it was up to them, but uh, instructed missionaries to no longer actively seek them out. And so uh, it becomes pretty evident why uh, the Latter-day Saints uh, faith 
becomes known as a white church by the 20th century. Let me, I'm doing this because I want to have this backdrop for this wonderful public history effort, um, bringing back the lives and understanding all the various um, uh, Latter-day Saints who were also African-American. And it's not just a Utah story. This is a story of people becoming members and going elsewhere. And um, well, first, let's conclude with the background with what happens in the 20th century. Well, uh, so that those racial restrictions become solidified in place, and it's it's not until uh, June of 1978 that uh, they are lifted. Uh, the then leader of, of the faith, uh, a man by the name of Spencer Kimball, claims a revelation then that will return Mormonism to its universalistic roots uh, and simply say there are no more racial restrictions. So it, it returns it back to where it began uh, in in the 1830s and 1840s. Well, I can uh, reminisce a little bit in the in the 1970s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, working uh, for Brigham Young University's uh, Harold Bailey Library. When that revelation came out, they had a whole body of material that they had tried to collect to, in in this double downing on this concept. They thought, well, we better just keep collecting all this research related to why we believe the way we do. And it was stunning to me to see that material uh, removed from the library. Um, it was kind of an interesting experience. Um, so um, here we are right now, 2019. Um, there are um, thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps, members of, uh, of this church who are um, African or Africans or African-Americans or all over the world. Why does this project that you've done, um, tell us about why it is valuable to people today, particularly people who love Utah's history? Sure. Well, so uh, estimates are uh, as many as one million people uh, in in the faith of black African descent, if you talk about the global population uh, in the 21st century. Uh, so why does it matter? Uh, um, well, one reason is uh, it, it gives people a pioneer past uh, that they may not have been aware of. Uh, it, it demonstrates, right, that um, they didn't show up in this faith only after 1978, even though sometimes that's the way it gets portrayed, simply because it's too uncomfortable to speak about them before 1978, because then you have to recognize the racism that barred them from full access to saving rituals within the faith. Uh, and Century Black Mormons uh, simply wants to address all of those issues and uh, allow uh, then the lives of, of those who are in the database to speak for themselves and make the sources publicly available so that the public can, uh, you know, make sense of that for themselves as well. Well, Paul, this is wonderful. Uh, you're listening to Speak Your Peace. I'm Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian at the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. Uh, we're going to take just a moment uh, to um, collect some additional ideas, and then we'll be back uh, in the next section of this very interesting interview. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you.